Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. This is Matt Hines, author of Full Funnel Marketing, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, which is named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help you discover new ideas about what's actually working in modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything discussed in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if you're listening to the show right now and you're not driving or operating dangerous machinery, please hop on Twitter and tell us where in the world you're listening from. My Twitter handle is marketingbook. Today, we welcome Matt Hines to the Marketing Book Podcast. We're going to talk about his book, Full Funnel Marketing. Matt Hines is a keynote speaker, author, blogger, and host of the Sales Pipeline Radio podcast. His day job is president and founder of Hines Marketing. Prior to founding Hines Marketing, Matt held various positions at companies such as Microsoft, Weber Shandwick, Boeing, and the Seattle Mariners. Matt can be found on lists like the top 50 most influential people in sales lead management and the top 50 sales and marketing influencers. And interesting fact, he has the most unbelievable award-winning dry-cured smoked bacon recipe that we're going to include in the show notes. Matt, congratulations on Full Funnel Marketing and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Look forward to talking about marketing, bacon, all things in between. Yeah. I mean, how can you go wrong with that? You cannot. So just a little background for maybe for the listener's benefit. I've been a fan of yours for you know a few years now. And one year, gosh, maybe four years ago, I saw you at the inbound conference and I was going to go up and introduce myself and, you know, say hello. But you were talking to these three very attractive women and they seem to be hanging on your every word. So the bro code prevented me from from interrupting <laughs> that. And I should add for the listener's benefit, you know, Matt seems to be a enormously happily married guy with three children. But then I finally got to meet you at the CEB Sales and Marketing Roundtable last summer and that was very exciting. And, you know, my recollection, it was about two days of smart people like yourself and authors and talking about sort of the dysfunctionality of sales and marketing alignment in, in the business world these days. It was. So first of all, thank you for following the bro code. I am a happily married man, the three, three great kids. Yes. Uh, so that's all good. But yeah, well, the, you know, um, I should add, Matt. And this yeah. is a, I got a bone to pick with you. I, I see on Facebook, you're always, first off, you're cooking all this really great meat, but but you're also quite the woodworker and you're always making these really, really nice looking wooden toys for your kids. And I'm thinking, Matt, ju- just when I thought I might be father of the year, you know, you, you, you start doing that. So, you know, there's always next year, I guess. Well, you know, we, we, you know what Facebook and Instagram are. It's basically just the top 5% of our lives. So, right. you know, we are, we are all uh, struggling, <laughs> struggling to be better parents and better fathers and better husbands. And no, I mean, I, look, I mean, I spend all day, my, my day job is to, uh, you know, I write and I talk and I type and that's what I do. I sit on my butt and do those things. And so to be able to work on my calluses on weekends is a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, very it's satisfying. Fun to, 
it's fun to expose my kids to that. Uh, it's fun to do things that actually have practical application. I mean, the toys for the kids are fun, but also, you know, my wife is a big gardener. So I'm doing a lot of garden infrastructure projects, built our chicken coop, built a rabbit hutch for the, uh, for the new rabbit. Oh, that's right. The rabbit ago. hutch. I've been following that. Yeah, it's fun. It's, it's, it's just, it's something that's totally different. And, you know, you don't, you don't, I don't have my phone with me. I'm not, uh, you know, checking Twitter every two minutes as I'm, you know, building a, building a deck chair or whatever. So it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but th- that CEB conference was great. I think it was, it was, I could have just sat back and just listened to all of you talk and debate the different elements of the challenger sale and challenger customer. And you're right that what we're doing in sales and marketing is getting more and more complicated. It's getting more and more confusing. Uh, I spoke to a con- company this morning that was, interviewing CMOs to better understand what they were focused on, what they were prioritizing, how they were justifying their budget. And the common answer for most of those CMOs, you know, when they are put into a situation where they, they think their, their answers aren't going to be shared with their bosses, like, I don't know. It's very complicated. <laughs> I mean, half the, half the time, the CMOs that want to embrace revenue responsibility are getting resistance from the very sales teams and sales leaders they want to support. And so, you know, there's, there's all kinds of layers of complexity, including some cultural changes that have to happen that are objected to and blocked by the status quo from many different levels. And so this isn't an excuse, clearly. It's just it's a it's a understanding that this this is the situation we face and that these are the challenges we have to overcome to be better marketers. Yes, inertia is the most powerful force on earth as it relates to change. So let me just read an excerpt from the beginning of the book. And I got a bunch of questions. We can't get to all of them, but I'm going to get in as many as I can. It's no longer enough for B2B marketers to feed their sales team with qualified leads, supply them with content and bid them. Good luck the rest of the way. Today's full funnel marketers are actively working side by side with the sales team throughout every stage of the buying journey and sales process embracing revenue responsibility, and measuring their impact based on not just sales pipeline contribution, but marketing influence on closed business and direct revenue growth. This expanded role for modern B2B marketing organizations is transforming how the function is viewed, prioritized, and funded. Converting marketing from a cost center to a strategic profit center in companies big and small across all industries. This book is your guide to transforming your role, your team, and your business with the full funnel marketing approach. So Matt, why did you write this book? Well, first of all, next time I do an audio version of my book, you're hired. That was fantastic. I've been practicing Uh, all day. No, that's really, really good. You know, I, this book is important to me for a number of reasons, but in part because of what we were just talking about, the, the, the confusion that many CMOs have around what they should be doing, what they should be prioritizing. The idea that many CMOs still think their job is to do marketing. You know, that, and, I, and I think the organizations that they work in think of them as the arts and crafts department. And it's unfortunate that we've let ourselves as marketers get that far to, to, to sink to that level. Uh, not that arts and crafts isn't valuable, not that brand isn't valuable, but in especially a B2B organization, if you are not uh, understanding and contemplating and positioning your marketing as directly impacting sales, directly impacting metrics you can buy a beer with, then you're not going far enough. I had a VP of sales, in fact, last week at a conference tell me straight up, if I hear a VP of marketing that says their goal is a marketing qualified lead, their goal is MQLs then I know they're not really aligned with me. If they don't consider their goal to help me close business, if they don't consider their goal to be my goal, if, if my goal isn't their goal, then we don't have alignment. And, it, and what I love about that is it, 
first of all, it's, you know, it's a little harsh for some people that haven't heard that before, but it's true and it's simple. You don't have to have a scorecard of 18 different things for marketing. Your goal is sales. Your goal is revenue. Your goal is lifetime value of your customers. And if you can separate your operational dashboards from your executive dashboards, if you can keep your geeky inside baseball, MQL, SQL stats to yourself and report to the organization metrics that your CFO already understands and cares about and prioritizes, then you're moving in the right direction. And for me, that's that is you know part and parcel to what full funnel marketing means it means you are not just responsible for the top half you're not just responsible for handing something to mart to sales you're responsible for the entire funnel and, and marketers that are embracing that today are being perceived as business leaders their their departments are no longer seen as a cost center they're seen as a profit center and i mean that mostly figuratively not literally but there's a big big difference in terms of the business value those marketers and those teams are delivering to the organization when they take that mentality. Amen. And this is fresh on my mind because I gave a talk last week to a marketing group, and it was based on you know insights from over 100 books that I've read for the podcast. And there was a Fornay's group study you've probably heard about where they determined that like only 20% of CEOs trust their marketers because they feel they are just too disconnected from the financial realities of their company. And there was another book that has been on the show recently, The 12 Powers of a Marketing Leader. And they say what you're saying there, they're saying, look, you have got to get in that 20%. You've got to get in the revenue camp or you're, you're dead. It's true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard for some marketers to hear that really have not embraced revenue responsibility. One of the first objections I hear from a lot of marketers and marketing leaders is that they don't, how can they be held accountable for a metric that they don't control? I'll tell you what, the sales team's held accountable for a metric they don't control every single day. You, you show me a salesperson that controls when the deal gets closed. I mean, that doesn't exist. They'd all hit their number all the time. And when we're selling into complex B2B organizations, your buyer most likely doesn't control when the deal gets done. Yeah. So let's take control off the table and simply know that, hey, look, if if uh, if sales is grinding it out at the end of the month and the end of the quarter to hit their number and marketing is celebrating across the street at the bar because they hit their retweet goal, something is wrong. And that's why in the book you talk about, you know, why does sales still not completely trust marketing? And it's because that alignment at the end of the day isn't there. I mean, that you know, what I told you, the, that example of sales grinding it out, you know, marketing, celebrating the retweet. I wish that was a joke. I wish I had made that up. But that is a true story from a marketing organization where the leader said we are in alignment with sales. And this doesn't mean that they can't celebrate their operational metrics. It doesn't mean retweets aren't important. I mean, content marketing is critical to profit center marketers that are building credibility, that are building trust, that want to create greater efficiency and velocity in their pipeline. But the goal is not content. The goal is not retweets. The goal is not leads. The goal is sale. And and take that another step forward. I've seen marketing organizations that are embracing revenue responsibility, embracing full funnel marketing, take the leads that are generated from their sales team, leads that that were not originated by marketing, And marketing considers it their job to do everything they can to help those leads close, to give their sales team the tools, the processes, and the content to convert more of those sales-generated leads into closed deals. I mean, that is sales enablement, and that is being embraced by more and more marketing organizations across B2B, not because it's going to make their leads look good, but because – it's their further contribution to helping the overall organization close more deals. The beginning of the book, you talk about some of the habits of highly effective B2B marketers. What, what are some of those? 
Well, there's, I talk about, I think in the book, we talk about six habits of highly effective marketers. And a couple, you know, one of them is certainly, you know, metrics driven for sure is understanding that the executing on marketing is often the art and understanding what you're going to say and how you're going to compel someone to move forward. But, you know, uh, great marketing begins with science. It ends with science. You know, you, you understand up front what metrics you need to hit. And at the end of the day, you measure whether you've hit those or not. Uh, I also think a big part of being a, a, a modern marketer and a full funnel marketer is empathy. You know, you have to have empathy for your peers. You have to have empathy for your counterparts in sales. You have to have empathy for your customer. And empathy today still stands out. You say empathy is a shortcut to trust. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Well, I mean, it's understanding enough about the other side's perspective and either asking questions or making statements that demonstrate that you understand that. You know, before we started podcast today, I was giving you the example of you know, I was on a prospect call where at the beginning, you know, the 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 guy clearly, I don't know, I didn't know he didn't know why he was on or couldn't remember it, but he was very defensive. As he started to talk a little bit about what he was working on, I started to share examples of what some of his peers had done and sharing best practices of what had happened. And I think very quickly he he understood that I I understood enough about his business and his sales process. I understood and you know, I wasn't just treating it like a sales call. And I was able to sort of share some best practices in a very hopefully generous way. He completely opened up, you know, by by being empathetic to not only understanding his, sort of his situation on the call, but also leaning in on some of the problems he was having and sharing ideas. It changed the nature and the value of the call, I think, for both of us fairly quickly. And I think, you know, empathy can play those different roles. I mean, empathy is an entry to being generous. It's an it's an entry point to 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 being creative on behalf of your customers, whether those customers are your end customers or whether those customers are your sales counterparts across the way. There was a, an interesting part of your book, I'd never seen this, where you talk about like investors in startups mm-hmm. and you talk about some of the th- sales and marketing questions investors should be asking a founding team. Can, can you touch on some of those? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, if you're, if, if I'm an investor, and I'm going to someone who thinks they have a good idea. I want to make sure they understand how they're going to take that to market. Uh, I want to make sure they understand, like, what's your model? How many deals do you need to close? How big a pipeline do you need to get there? How many leads do you need to get there? I want to make sure someone understands not just the companies they're trying to sell to, but who are the decision makers inside those companies? You know, buildings don't write checks. People do. So you yes. may say, well, we're selling into healthcare. But who are specifically the people inside those health organizations that own the problem, that have some, enough juice to do something about it? And what do you know not only about you know how you're going to sell your product to them, but about their situation so that you can do that early challenge your sale, challenge the status quo, loosen the status quo moment? You know, understanding that and and being nuanced enough to know. And this now we're, I mean, those two examples is exactly the science and the art of selling, right? And of marketing. It's knowing what your numbers are to begin with. At what scale do you have to do this? But then within those numbers, how do you talk to people? You know, before, and we all want people to believe in us. We want people to understand what we do and believe in it so they'll buy it. But before they believe in us, people need to believe, period. They need to believe in their outcomes. They need to believe in the problems that they have. They need to believe that a better way exists to do something or to not do something to their betterment. They have to believe in the outcome and the opportunity cost or lack thereof of achieving something. And once they believe in that, once they commit to the change that represents, now they're ready to listen to what you have to sell. You know, that precipitates 
learning about your product and service. And yet too many of us, you know, we want to move right into the demo, right into the description. And without that foundation of need, we're not going very far. Well, you know, you talk about asking a startup, you know, what is your sales process? <laughs> Who is your target customer and, and why? Do you think that a lot of startups don't have answers to those questions? Well, I know for sure a lot of startups don't have answers to those questions. I mean, we we work with, you know, we work with a lot of early stage, you know, growth stage, mid-market companies. They, you, know, you go to their website, you go to their materials, listen to their sales reps, and all they do is talk about themselves. I saw a company recently where if you look across their materials, their primary position, uh, value proposition, the primary reason people should buy from them, apparently is because they're a SaaS business. Like that is the, that is the lead me- sort of benefit across all their messaging. And it's really, really easy. I mean, look, you know, you, you get excited about what you're building. You get enamored with it. You stare at your same four walls and you assume that your prospects understand that as well. And the, the, the problem with early adopters is sometimes those very early adopter customers, those very first customers, they're like you and they understand that as well. But if you want to cross the chasm, if you want to scale interest and, and adoption of whatever you're selling, you have to connect that with a need. Uh, and that is not something that a lot of early stage companies do well. You mentioned one point that really resonated with me, which is buildings don't write checks, people do. Mm -hmm. That's a carve in stone one. (laughs) But another one, you say work the funnel, but sell to the buyer's journey. Explain what you mean there. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is the difference between the buying process and the sales process. Uh, I think it's really important. I've heard a lot of people say, well, this, you know, sales pipeline is dead. People don't follow that progression linearly. And that may be true. But I got to have something to manage my pipeline, right? I need to have some stages that for me as a seller helps me sort of sort and categorize and qualify prospects so that I know what to do with them next. So I know which of them are closer to buying than others. So I, I, I feel fundamentally strongly that managing those sales stages in your CRM is important to scale and predict predictably grow your sales team and your sales efforts. But that, you know, you cannot project that to your to your prospect. I've literally heard some people set up prospect calls and they call to the prospect, they call it a discovery call. <laughs> I've I've had I've had emails come from an SDR to me as a prospect where the subject line says monthly outreach. Like it, 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 we don't don't call these things what they are. So the, the right. face that you have of your sales and marketing needs to be very buyer centric. The first stage is not you know, shoehorn into a demo. The first stage may be loosening the status quo. It may be a value-added conversation that helps discover and quantify the cost of a problem someone may or may not have. You know, the next stage may not be, oh, they're an SQL. It may be they're committed to change. They're committed to doing something on their own behalf. And they're committed now because of that commitment there, the next step is to explore solutions, including yours, right? So, and that buying journey is not linear. I mean, it goes in all different directions. It stops, it starts, it goes sideways, it goes forward, it goes backwards. And so managing that proactively with the prospect takes nuance, but I still think you can't give up on managing a linear approach to your pipeline so that you can, in a disciplined way, predict a sustainable set of closed deals over time. Right. It, it reminds me a bit of another book we've had on the show, The Science of Selling by David Hoffeld. And he explains in the book the, a lot of the brain science behind why people make buying decisions. But he, one of the things he talks about is how sales training is very much focused on the sales process rather than the buying process. And it's a subtle difference, but you know it comes back to that empathy that you're, you're talking about there. So I should explain, every week there's somebody new listening to the show who's been thrust into a marketing role. MQL means marketing qualified lead. SQL means uh, sales qualified lead. Now, the term account-based marketing, 
It's a sort of like social selling. It's just hot. Everybody's talking about it. Explain what account-based marketing is and what are some of the keys to doing it correctly? Oh boy. Yeah, I, I feel like I need someone to explain to me what account-based marketing means these days. I think it's gone through a lot of... Uh, you know, a lot of different iterations. For, for me, if I mean, you take the acronyms and the buzzwords aside, a couple things need to happen. You know, in most B two B marketing organizations, one we've already talked about the first piece. Like sales and marketing need to work as one co- coordinated, integrated unit. It doesn't mean marketing is not going to have their role. It doesn't mean sales isn't going to have their role. But this is not a marketing owns the top half, sales owns the bottom half, and we'll have a little wall. We throw stuff at each other in the middle. You know, especially with your most important target prospects. Sales and marketing needs to work together. And the way they work together most effectively is when they are working from the same playbook and not just the same process and tools playbook, but the same messaging playbook, knowing that you're going to begin the conversation with that loosening of the status quo and getting that commitment to change, knowing that inside your target organizations, there is a buying committee of people. And CEB says it's, it's 6.8 people on average in that buying committee. What are their roles? Who are the people you're talking to? What role do they have as part of that buying committee? How do you build consensus among that group, not only as a salesperson, but as a marketer? So to me, account-based marketing, forget you forget the buzzword and say our most important accounts. We can't afford not to have a unified face to them across sales and marketing. And we can't afford not to consider the entire buying committee, the complexity of the way those buyers buy in the way that we manage the relationship and the way that we create velocity. And the way that we help that team internally build consensus and a unified consensus for what they need so they can move forward more quickly. You know, marketing ROI, I'm sure you hear that just about every hour <laughs> of every workday. You know, m- measuring marketing is becoming easier than the days of John Wanamaker, the 19th century retailing and marketing pioneer, when he said, only half my advertising works. The problem is I don't know which half. So a lot more can be measured, but not everything that can be measured matters. So how do you know if a metric is worth tracking? That's a great question. And I, I think that, you know, so on one hand, the the complexity of the buying process, we're managing the complexity of our sales and marketing efforts behind it, continue to outpace our ability to completely measure everything that's working. Uh, and that's frustrating to me. It's frustrating to a lot of marketers, frustrating to a lot of sales and marketing leaders, let alone CEOs and boards. But I think that amidst that, intent becomes more important than precision. Your ability to create a sales and marketing program that is buyer-driven, that is results-oriented, the fact that you're not going after PR for PR's sake, the fact that you are no longer trying to get your primary keywords to rank on Google simply because it's a vanity thing for your CEO or founder to get there, the fact that you no longer are trying to decrease your cost per lead simply because that sounds like a good metric, but you're in, many, in some cases, maybe increasing your cost per lead and decreasing your lead volume because it's driving more of the right leads into your funnel. And the economics works such that even if you're spending more on a lead, you're spending the same or less on an opportunity and then significantly less to acquire the right customers. So, you know, measuring all of this back to which blog posts work, which ad work con- needs to continue to be the goal. But I've seen way too many companies, you know, give up on driving a culture of full funnel marketing in the organization and just make bad decisions with 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 imprecise intent that is counter to the overall organizational's goals. Yeah. In the book you were so clear it almost hurt. <laughs> you know, like things like can you take action on it? 
Mm-hmm. Can you make a decision based on it? You know, can you change something you're doing based on it? You know, I can just imagine people sitting around the conference table asking a question like that and making some people upset. But they've got well, think about <laughs> yeah, think about the opportunity cost of having too many things in your scorecard. I mean, I, I've seen sales managers spend all day Friday building reports based on what other people have said they want to see. And, and a lot of those metrics never get looked at. They get ignored. I mean, if there's something in your scorecard that you don't look at, someone's spending time putting it there and they're wasting time. If you have something in your scorecard that you look at and if the wrong answer is staring you in the face, if there's nothing you can do about it or if there's nothing you're willing to do about it, then why are you even bother reporting on it? I, mean, I think you know your, your dashboard, your reports need to be actionable. You need to be able to do something about things you don't like and, and know that you know putting something in a report is not free. You know, they're uh, part of the reason why sales reps spend so much time in CRM is because we want to see it. We want to report on it. And as much as I'd love to see all the sales reps activity in Salesforce, some of those activities I'm not going to do anything about. And that the time spent adding that to Salesforce is that much less time selling. Yeah. And things get added incrementally. And nothing ever seems to get removed. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and I think with this, I mean, auditing what you're reporting on, auditing what your team's doing. I mean, uh, I, I'm a big proponent in the marketing technology space of auditing what's in your MarTech stack. Make sure you still need it. Make sure it's still working the way you want it to. Make sure it's still giving you the benefits you need. The same goes with your reports and your dashboards. Do you really need to look at all that information? Are you really getting value from everything you're collecting? There's a soft cost to gathering it. There's a soft cost to looking at it if it's not doing you any good. One other question about marketing metrics. What are some of the content marketing metrics that people should be measuring on their blog, for instance? It's a great question. I think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with looking at reach and engagement and looking at, you know, how much of an audience within your target market is engaging with your content. I think reach and frequency still very much is important in building awareness and preference within any audience, B2B or B2C. Uh, You know, I would encourage you to use your marketing automation platform to measure precisely the target audience you're going after, the leads you care about and the accounts you care about. How often are they engaging with your content? You know, what action are they taking from your content? So you're looking less at reach and impressions and looking more at action and activity from that content. You know, if you're doing marketing automation right, you know, you should be able to then see as those prospects make their way through the funnel, you should start to be able to 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 create weighted attribution around what types of content, what subjects of content, what formats of content are working best. And I think you mentioned the idea of, you know, don't just look at the traffic, look at your repeat traffic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think, um, I mean, traffic's great, but like, who's coming back? You know, your job at the top of the pipeline is not to close the deal. It's not even to get the demo. It's to earn some attention. And the first time someone sees you, you don't stand out from anybody. But as you start to create some value, say things that are interesting, you share things that make someone better, that makes them smarter. You earn a little more attention next time. So as people come back again and again, as they start to spend a little more time with you, well, you are in the right to put a little more in front of them. You are in the right to ask a little more. You are in the right to qualify a little more. And the prospect is more likely to lean in on that with you because they trust you. And that doesn't happen in one interaction. That doesn't happen in one visit. I mean, I still see B2B companies trying to model their acquisition based on, well, I got this traffic and here's the conversion rate of that traffic. Well, that may work in a consumer context. But when you're selling things that are nine to 12 month sales cycles, let's not pretend one web visit is going to do the trick. You know, you're selling a seven-figure IT solution. Let's not pretend the white paper alone got you the deal. 
Uh, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. Okay. One other vocabulary question, just for the new listeners. We've talked about account-based marketing. We're going to talk about social selling, but influencer marketing. If you met somebody who'd never heard of it, what do you tell them and how is it being done right and wrong? Wow. We spent a whole half hour on that one. You know, I think for someone that does audio tape, go right ahead. <laughs> Good. You still use audio tape. What is this, is this to be tape recorded? Yeah, I kick it old school, Matt. I love it. I love it. So if someone doesn't understand what influencer marketing, as I say, it's basically the new PR. You know, you used to have to like, you know, call up the New York Times and call up the Washington Post or whoever and find a professional reporter, try to get their attention, try to get them to tell your story. And so there was a set number of professional press, professional analysts that there were the gateways to your story, to your target audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I love about influencers is now you've got a group of sort of amateurs, so to speak. You got people that are simply, in many cases, just authentically smart and interesting and interested in a particular topic. And whether they try to build or not, they have an audience. They have people in your target market that listen to them. They may be bloggers. They may be, you know, uh, peers that have the same job that happen to get asked to speak at conferences. So therefore, people follow them. They are there is it's a high, usually a higher volume of more accessible people that have the same role that press has traditionally had, which is they've got the ear of your target audience. And so your ability to build relationships with those influencers, to share content, to 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 earn the right for them to share your content with with their audience, it's the same role and the same objective as PR. It just, it's, it's a little, if you're working it right, it's done, it's easier. Now, one of the ways you can do that wrong is to follow the same PR playbook. Most influencers who are not trained journalists and are not used to being approached by PR people don't want to call from the PR firm being pitched to a press release. When are you going to cover this? It doesn't work that way as well. You know, the authentic relationship is someone from the company. It might be you calls up the influencer and says, Hey, I've been reading a lot of your stuff. I think it's really great. It seems like you're really interested in these couple topics. I've got a couple, you know, points of interest on that topics. Would you be interested in learning more? You make those influencers look smart. You give them content that feeds their story, it feeds the themes that they're promoting and through their content, you have their attention and you may just get some coverage along with it. So to those business owners, why do you recommend against hiring a quote, head of marketing? <laughs> well, there's a couple ways to think about that. You know, one What is, do you mean by it? Well, you know, early, early stage companies, the last thing you want to do is hire more senior people. You know, it's the same, almost the same reason why with early stage startups, I recommend not hiring a VP of sales first because that person, whether they're head of marketing or head of sales, probably hasn't actually done the work in a while and is, you know, going to be an expensive hire and is just going to want to hire a team of people around them to do the work. If you're an early stage company, you need to hire someone that's going to roll up our sleeves and do the work. And they may be someone that can work their way into that senior position, but I think you want to hire doers first. That's great. So- no justice, no peace. Explain what you mean when you say there is no sale without marketing and no marketing without sales. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, it was my cheeky way, I think. Uh, when, you, and it, for the listener's benefit, Matt did not write no justice, no peace. That was my uh, That part, yeah, that was that <laughs> embellishment. Was that part. It's funny. Every once in a while, I'll hear salespeople, you know, that will say, well, I don't get any support from marketing. And yet, you know, you know, there's people answer their phone because they've heard of the company, right? Or people stop by the trade show booth because someone invited them to come. You know, there there's marketing work that happens even if there isn't a marketing organization in your company. 
you know, because you're doing press releases, because you're making noise, because people hear about you from others. I mean, and honestly, you know, unless marketing, unless it's a consumer business where marketing is closing deals online, you can generate the best leads in the world, but someone's got to pull them across the line. Deals don't close themselves, especially in B2B, especially in complex B2B. So this is not about pointing fingers. This is simply understanding that these two roles are, neither of them are sufficient on their own, but both of them are required to build a scalable, repeatable pipeline of business for your company. Yeah, well, I, I liked the way you worded that, and I will borrow that liberally in presentations, with full attribution, of course. Of course. So you say that the market-leading companies today and into, into the near future will continue to treat sales and marketing as a unified, coordinated, tightly blended effort, and I guess that's what you would call full-funnel marketing. So, Matt, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? You know, if you're in marketing, you have to embrace revenue responsibility. You have to be willing to step up out of your comfort zone and embrace something you don't have complete control of. Uh, and, and I think your ability to do that will speak volumes of you as a business leader. It will help you build credibility with your sales counterpart. It will help more in the organization align behind you and give you the resources you need when you put your money where your mouth is on that as well. Well said. And I would add, I don't know if you would agree, but that is part of the reason why you're seeing a growing number of CMOs becoming CEOs. They have much deeper insights into the sales process, the customer, the, the customer experience, and how to operate the revenue machine. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And and this is we're seeing this in greater volume because, you know, no one was going to elevate the, the head of the arts and crafts department to CEO. But now you've got marketers that act and operate as business leaders. You've got marketers that speak the language of the CFO. You've got marketers that understand the responsibility the entire organization has to be customer centric and revenue oriented uh, and to balance those two things effectively. Uh, that That is a great set of skills for any marketer whether they want to be a CEO or not. So what books have inspired your work and career? Uh, I read a lot. And I think, you know, I think about the books I've read. I, I, I would say the sales books for me probably have meant more just in my growth as a as a math marketer, as a revenue marketer. Certainly the Challenger books have been great for me. I would say, you know, Anthony Iannarino's uh, The Only Sales Guide You Ever Need has been great. Every one of Jill Conrath's books, I have just learned a ton from, you know, Hunting Hunting Big Sales by Tom Searcy is a favorite of mine. And then I go old school. There's a book called Scientific Advertising by Claude Hopkins. And yes. I think it's it's still, it's one of the best marketing books I've ever read. And it was written in what, like 1921? Yes. It's an old, I have old a copy book. of it. It's a reprint, of course, but. Yeah. I mean, if you want to learn about great direct marketing and great copywriting, Look no further than, what is it, you know, 90 years ago. I know. Um, you know, one of the best books in, in the industry. It's And it'll, like, if you've got an hour-long flight, you'll probably finish it. It's a really short read, but it's really well, really highly recommended. And it's like, for me, it's like reading How to Win Friends and Influence People, which I think was written in the 30s, and it's still so unbelievably relevant. The more time that goes by, the more it amazes me. We keep writing this book over and over again, right? I mean, people that, that haven't read The Challenger Sale, I usually say, well, have you read Dale Carnegie? Like, that, that's pretty close. <laughs> uh, if, if For people that are in sales and marketing, if they want to know the best book to read on, on sales strategy, I will send them to Challenger Sale. It, for people that are not in sales that may not want that sort, of, that sort of wonky of a read, I send them to Daniel Pink's How to Sell as Human. I think that book did a great layman's job of describing what good selling, universally good selling is. 
Yeah, and if there's any uh, one listening who knows him or maybe is a neighbor, I'd love to get him <laughs> on the show. But yeah, that's that's a great one. I think there's a bigger issue that I want to make to the listener. I have a lot of sales books on this, what's called the Marketing Book Podcast. And the reason why is because if modern marketers don't understand the sales process, I, I don't know how they're going to stay in marketing. It's different from five or even, you know, 10 years ago. So marketers also, as they read, I think it was uh, Chad Pollitt, author of uh, the Content Promotion Manifesto. He said, I read more sales books than marketing books. And the reason why is because marketers, if they read too many marketing books, their heads fill with helium and they float up to the top of the funnel. (laughs) You know, I, I like that a lot. And I think that there aren't that many books from marketers that speak to the end of the pipeline. Yeah. And sales books by their nature do. And I, I think there's so many good sales books. And I mentioned a few, The Challenger Sale, all of Jill Conrad's books, Anthony Nierino's books, um, Jeb Blount's, uh, you know, high impact prospecting, high impact selling, uh, Mike Weinberg's sale, Sales Management Simplified. I mean, there's some amazing books out there that are written for salespeople that should be required reading for B2B marketers. Yeah. And I know I sound like a baseball card collector, but all of them. I've had the honor of interviewing for the show, and I, nice. I affirm what you're saying. Absolutely loved their books. Just wonderful. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you've heard of that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Well, uh, there's a new book coming out by Jeb Blount, who I know you sounds like you have spoken to, yeah, called Sale, uh-huh. Sales EQ. Uh, I'm super excited about that. Jeb is I mean, Jeb is my hero on a number of different fronts, and he writes fantastic books. And this is, you know, the uh, the emotional intelligence required to do successful selling, uh, and really, you know, now successful full funnel marketing is is never been more important. And so, I'm really excited to see what he's what he's got. I am I am waiting impatiently for my review copy that is supposed to be here literally any day. So I'm excited to see what that looks like. Yeah, I know. I mean, I know there's a lot of people in the industry that are working on books. Uh, if you haven't read Mark Roberge's book on the sales development framework, uh, that's oh, a great the one. The sales as well. acceleration formula. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's a, it's a really, really good one. And um, yeah, I, I'm sure there's more stuff coming out. But I think you know, Jeb, Jeb's in, it kind of stands out to me right now. So, how best can listeners learn more about you and your book? Well, you can find the book online. You can get it on Amazon, Full Funnel Marketing, or you can just go to HeinzMarketing.com. You can get a full digital copy for free. Uh, you can go to FullFunnelMarketing.com, or you can just go to HeinzMarketing.com, and you'll find it there. And, you know, we got our own blog. We write every day. Uh, I'm on Twitter as well at, at HeinzMarketing. That's H-E-I-N-Z, like the marketing.com and then on Twitter at HeinzMarketing. And we'll make sure to link up all of those things you just mentioned in the show notes for this episode at marketingbookpodcast.com. I hope we can send a little bit of traffic your way. The name of the book is Full Funnel Marketing. The author is Matt Hines. Matt, thank you very much for being on the Marketing Book Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that closes the book on episode 118 of the Marketing Book Podcast. Links to everything linkable in the interview you just listened to are at marketingbookpodcast.com. And that's also where you can sign up for the Marketing Book Podcast newsletter so you never miss an episode. And if your next event needs some inspiration and entertainment, I'd be happy to present to your group key insights from over 100 marketing and sales books that have been featured on the Marketing Book Podcast. To contact me, just go to marketingbookpodcast.com and leave a message or... Contact me on LinkedIn. My name again is Douglas Burdett, or send me a tweet at my Twitter handle, Marketing Book. I look forward to hearing from you. And please join us next time as we welcome Tara Nicole Nelson to the show to talk about her new book, The Transformational Consumer. 
fuel a lifelong love affair with your customers by helping them get healthier, wealthier, and wiser. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast.